0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 20th of September, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we've got David Scott and Debbie Evans. Welcome to the program both. Now, we're going to get kicked off uh, straight away here with the online safety bill, because yesterday that passed its final parliamentary debate, which means it's just waiting for royal assent, which is a formality, of course. Uh, And uh, well, what did the government have to say about this? Uh, They said, this major milestone means the government is within touching distance of delivering the most powerful child protection laws in a generation while ensuring adults are better empowered to take control of their online lives while protecting our mental health. Um, And David, I thought that was a very interesting statement because my first question is, is who is our, who is us, our mental health? This seems to be suggesting, or it seems to be an acknowledgement from the British government that they were getting pretty stressed about some of the narratives that are going on out there, that their mental health is at risk, and therefore they've got to bring some legislation in to make sure that they are, uh, you know, feeling all right in themselves.
1: You're suggesting that unregulated truth-telling causes a mental breakdown on the part of the state. You, you might have a point there,
0: Mike. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's bring Michelle Donelan on screen. Here's what she had to say. Uh, I'm immensely proud of what we've achieved with this bill. Our common sense approach will deliver a better future. Uh, for British people by making sure that what's illegal offline is illegal online. Of course, whether something's illegal or not, it's a, if it's illegal, it's illegal. Offline, online makes no difference. So that really is no excuse for bringing this particular legislation in. Uh, now, uh, Melanie Dawes is the uh, is in charge of Ofcom. And of course, Ofcom becomes the new regulator for the internet, at least as far as the UK is concerned. Uh, very soon after the bill receives royal assent, she says, we'll uh, consult on the first set of standards that we'll expect tech firms to meet in tackling illegal online harms, including child sexu- sexual exploitation, fraud, and terrorism." And of course, these are all the things that they are really focusing on, trying to divert everybody away from the censorship uh, agenda. Um, let's just remind ourselves what some of, this, some of the things that this legislation does. Uh, it brings uh, in this, that platforms will need to use tools for content moderation user profile and behavior identification to protect their users. Because of course, snooping on people is protecting people. That's what we know. Uh, More proactive technology here. Additional provisions have been added to the bill to allow Ofcom to set expectations for the use of these proactive technologies in codes of practice and enforce companies to use better and more effective tools should this be necessary. And of course, uh, the whole encryption uh, situation that, that we've been talking about over the last number of months is part and parcel of this. Uh, We've got criminal liability for senior managers, so it gives Ofcom the powers to demand information and data from tech companies, including on the role of their algorithms in selecting and displaying content, so that Ofcom can assess how they're shielding users uh, from harm. Um, uh, It goes on to say Ofcom uh, will be able to enter companies' premises to access data and equipment, request interviews with company employees, and require companies to undergo an external assessment of how they're keeping users safe Uh, and more on criminal liability for senior managers uh, because it creates offences for companies in scope and or employees who suppress, destroy or alter information requested uh, by Ofcom. Uh, It creates offences for failing to comply with, obstructing or delaying Ofcom when exercising its powers of entry, audit and inspection, inspection or providing false information. Uh, It creates offences for employees who fail to attend or provide false information at an interview. Uh, And falling foul of these offences could lead Uh, to up to two years imprisonment or a fine. Um, So for the tech companies, uh, that really is backs against the wall time. They don't have much room for maneuver here. And of course, uh, one of the things that that was removed from the online safety bill uh, as a result of pressure from uh, campaigners and so on was the idea of removing content, which is legal but considered harmful. Uh, What the government has done instead is to put the onus on the tech companies uh, to define Uh, what types of uh, content are acceptable on their platforms, put that in the terms and conditions, and then very stringently enforce those terms and conditions, no flexibility at all. Um, So uh, let's just have a look at uh, some of the key points here. Platforms required to uphold their terms and conditions, as I've said. Uh, The other thing that this, of course, does is usher in or help usher in digital ID, because in order to keep children safe, we've got to be able to verify their ages, and in order to verify age, you've got to be able to verify your identity. Uh, So this inevitably uh, leads towards uh, digital ID. But the other thing that it does, of course, is it has a chilling effect on conversation on online platforms. We've already seen this building over the last number of years, but this is going to take it to the next level, um, which is going to force people into sort of niche areas. Uh, And so what it does is it creates, let's call it protest pens. Uh, The the idea of cross-pollination of ideas that we saw on social media over the last number of years is really being uh, rolled back back to the early days of the internet when you know in order to to uh, have conversations with with people, you ended up going to uh, very narrowly constrained uh, discussion forums on particular topics instead of uh, social media, which is quite broad in context. Uh, now just to uh, remind everybody about this page on the UK column website, uh, ukcolumn.org slash censored. Uh, if you go there and look at the timeline of how we got to this point, uh, it's uh, quite quite a journey. Uh, but David, uh, this is a pretty dangerous situation for everybody. Uh, we are now at the point where Ofcom is the regulator, uh, and we now have to wait and see how, the form that that regulation takes at the end of the day. Um, where do we go?
1: The uh, lawyer Graham Smith is quoted here saying, if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, this is a motorway, uh, referring to this particular uh, bill now act. Um, and uh, this, is, this is the issue. This, the direction of travel is very clearly towards more and more control over what is said, and there doesn't seem to be any pushback in terms of establishing and securing the principles of free speech along that road is only towards less and less freedom, uh, all for the most noble of, noble of intentions, of course.
0: Yes. Okay. And uh, Debbie, uh, let's bring you on screen now and talk about the COVID inquiry, because there seems to be a bit of censorship going on there.
2: Yes, that does indeed. And my question would be actually to all those that are vaccine injured, I wonder how they're going to feel about the online harms bill. Um, I'm incredibly, um, I have so much respect and admiration for those with uh, vaccine injuries and the bereaved. And notice this story in the Telegraph, um, that people that have been injured or bereaved by COVID vaccines are having to speak in code Um, online. Um, This includes our very own um, friends Charlotte from UKCV family, Charlotte Crichton, uh, Vib and the Scottish vaccine injured. When you go in to look at the article a little bit more, please feel free to freeze the screen and you can see the kind of abuse and stigma that the vaccine injured and bereaved have been suffering from censorship. Um, I think we're going to be seeing more of the, the next piece of video in extra. But just as a snippet of the KC and Morris speaking at the COVID inquiry, let's look. In addition to their injury
3: and bereavement, those we represent have also experienced a second trauma. A lack of medical knowledge and understanding about the risk and presentation of vaccine injury has left injured people undiagnosed and without treatment. Furthermore, a prevailing institutional mindset within medical bodies and the government has been fixated solely on acknowledging the benefits of the vaccine. This has led to the reporting vaccine injury to feel disbelieved, unheard, and marginalised. Censorship is a very real issue, my lady, for the vaccine-injured and bereaved. Their support groups have been shut down by social media platforms, and their experience is censored by the mainstream media. They have to speak in code online for fear of having their only source of support taken away from them. They face stigma and abuse for sharing their symptoms in the context of the COVID vaccine and even being branded as anti-vax for sharing very real and medically proven vaccine injuries. Care must be taken in the inquiry's own examination of the role of social media and ensure that the inquiry itself doesn't fall into the trap of further disenfranchising those who have experienced vaccine injury.
2: And also she went on to say that NHS staff who had been vaccinated and who were also vaccine injured were being threatened and they were being bullied and victimised. So we'll be seeing more of that in extra.
0: Okay, thank you, Debbie. Uh, Now, David, let's uh, move on to uh, Ukraine.
1: Yeah, so I think a significant piece of news here, we've got a Telegraph reporting uh, a Russian submarine has been hit by a British-supplied Storm Shadow missile. Now, this uh, submarine was a Kilo-class, fairly modern, uh, diesel-electric submarine, launched in 2014. And it was in a dry dock in Sevastopol, the main Russian naval base in the Black Sea. Um, There was an attack that came in in two main waves, comprising um, uh, storm-shadow missiles plus some drones. Uh, Some of the missiles made it through, and uh, you see in this next shot here just how significant the damage to the submarine was. Uh, It's a complete write-off. This will be not rebuilt or repaired. This will be scrapped. And uh, there was also a large um, uh, assault landing craft type ship, uh, very severely damaged as well in the adjoining dry dock uh one more shot of the uh, of the damage you see so it's been hit by at least two missiles and the point I want to make here is this is the first piece of strategically important uh success by the Ukrainian western side there's been some two three months of um land assaults all across uh, the front line which have received, which have achieved little on the part of the Ukrainians have made some inroads maybe into sort of 10-kilometre sort of range in a few local areas. But there's been no strategic breakthrough. This, if this is now evidence that uh, Ukrainians are able to deny uh, Russia the use of, of Sevastopol as a naval base and are able to deny um, much of the Black Sea, perhaps, to uh, to the Russian Navy, that is a strategic shift. And the first, uh, first strategic uh, victory, you might say, uh, to the Ukrainian and Western side in the war. And, of course, this is based on uh, Western high-tech equipment uh, principally, um, uh, supplied in this case by Britain. We'll, we'll see how Russia responds.
0: Well, it's interesting, though, because actually the, the Ukrainians denied that it was storm shadow missiles, and so there's a bit of confusion about that. So that, that was the uh, Zelensky's advisor, uh, Poladesk if I pronounced Podolisk I'm not sure about the pronunciation of his name was absolutely determined we are using Ukrainian equipment and weapons for this purpose he is is what he said so so it's a bit unclear exactly uh whether it was storm shadows or not the russians had said uh that there were 10 missiles and and a number of drones and that uh seven of the missiles were shot down and all of the drones um so i just wonder i mean how, what do you think Uh, how significant do you think this actually is?
1: Well, I think it is because the the missile strike did get through and took took out two naval vessels in a dry dock in the main naval base. So I think that's significant. Uh, There has been an ongoing campaign by Ukraine now for some months to suppress the air defence system in Crimea, and that seems to be having, at least for the time being, some success. Whether Russia will reinforce this and 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 reverse that situation. Only time will tell, but I think it is the first strategic move by Ukraine that seems to be showing some success and is worth noting. As a result, but of course, what will what will now follow will be some form of Russian response, and we'll need to see what happens there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay, let's uh, move on then to well back to the UK, and of course, the news that came out yesterday was that. Uh, Rishi Sunak has decided to roll back some of his plans for his net zero policy. Uh, And I've labeled this as the first election casualty, uh, because, of course, one of the major problems that the Tory party has at the moment is how do they differentiate themselves from the Labour Party? Uh, There doesn't seem to be any real differentiation between uh, policies uh, at the moment. Uh, other than the sleaze uh, aspect of the Tory party, it seems hard to to differentiate between them. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, what uh, Rishi had to say. Let's bring him on screen. For too many years, politicians and governments of all stripes have not been honest about costs and trade-offs. Instead, they've taken the easy way out, saying we can have it all. Uh, he said, this realism doesn't mean losing our ambition or abandoning our commitments. Far from it. I'm proud that Britain is leading the, the world on climate change. Uh, so um, we're still leading the world, even though we're not. Uh, but uh, the government, uh, sorry, Swell Braverman then followed up by saying, our government is absolutely committed to delivering net zero by 2050 in, le- in line with our international agreements. But ultimately, we have to adopt a pragmatic approach, a proportionate approach. So people have spoken as they did in Oxbridge. They've sided with the Conservative policy to reject ULES. And this, I think, is the key, David, uh, because they're seeing the response from the general public over the ultra low emission zone, not just in London, but in the same types of policies uh, in other towns. And of course, we're going to be talking more about uh, the 20 mile an hour limitation later on in the program. Uh, But it seems like it's like children with a new toy. uh, They've spotted this might be an option uh, for uh, getting some support from a certain section of the community. And it seems to sit well more with, with Tory voters, perhaps, in their minds. And so they're jumping on it. Uh, it seems a little naive.
1: Well, it's, it's the standard Conservative Party approach. First, you surrender the principle. So we're going to go for net, 50, for net zero in 2050. Uh, we're going to reduce carbon, whatever that precisely means. CO2 is an existential threat to us all and climate catastrophe awaits. They buy all of that, right? None of it's true, but they buy it all. And having surrendered all of the principles, they then say, well, you know, we will manage the transition uh, more efficiently than the other party, and we're not quite as, you know, crazy and extreme as the other party, so vote for us as an attempt to hold on to power. This is the way it always goes. This is why they're unable to regain lost ground. This is why there's such a disappointment to so many people. Um, this is this is standard Conservative Party policy, looking for a way of holding on to power, but not standing up for principle.
0: No, indeed. Uh, but uh, you know, the key point here is that this is just words. They're pretending to st- step back from this, but they're still very much keeping twenty fifty in mind. In the meantime, though, uh, who is really upset with them? Well, it's the corporations. So here's uh, Lisa Bracken from uh, Ford UK uh, saying, three years ago, the government announced the UK's transition to electric new car and van sales from 2030. The auto industry is investing to meet that challenge. Uh, this is the biggest industry transformation in over a century. And the UK 2030 target is a vital catalyst to accelerate forward into a cleaner future. Uh, our business needs three things from government, ambition, commitment, and consistency. So <laughs> they're a bit upset, David, because you know they were seeing dollar signs uh, for uh, pursuing uh, a policy that was going to require everybody effectively to replace their, either replace their uh, internal combustion engine vehicles with electric vehicles or abandon vehicles altogether, which seems to be the ultimate goal. Um, but uh, you know, the dollar signs aren't quite so big anymore, it seems.
1: Well, yes. And this is, the, this is the problem with government intervention of this sort. Here we have the Ford Motor Company. And if you look at some of the advertising, just criticising and, and looking with scorn and contempt at their old, their old customers uh, who, who bought petrol Ford cars. Uh, and they're, they're not concentrating on making better cars for less money to deliver a better product for less cash to the consumer. No, their concentration is on modifying their offering to suit government policy, right? The consumer is now irrelevant it's all about the government and the, and the relationship between the government and the corporations. And we're now seeing them bickering because obviously that doesn't work because the economy is itself based on us all having choices and making decisions and the, the, the interaction of, of all of us producing signals through the economy that we respond to and we share resources and serve one another as a result. All of that's gone because we're now dealing with government diktat and corporate response. It's not working very well. And if uh, Ford think the government's going to be consistent, I would suggest that they need to be speaking to whoever was concerned about mental health in the part of the government <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in yeah. the first story we covered today.
0: Indeed. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org, uh, become a member. Uh, that helps us greatly, and it helps build uh, a, com- a sense of community amongst uh, our Viewers and listeners, uh, but uh, you could pick something up as an alternative uh, at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share everything, anything that you find uh, of interest on the UK Column.org, UK Column uk, and the other platforms. Now, Debbie, uh, your latest blog is out.
2: It is indeed. Uh, We've all heard of G20, but who's heard of B20? It's pretty significant. Uh, Another arm of the United Nations, the WMO, World Meteorological Organization. Very interesting. And for those of our friends in Australia, did you know that your domestic cats may go down into lockdown? And uh, one of the very interesting uh, innovations now, an under-the-tongue COVID pill, plus a lot more.
0: Well, I suppose putting cats into lockdown is marginally better than culling them. We'll see what happens this winter in the UK. Uh, uh, But in the meantime, tomorrow, 1pm, you've got an interview with uh, Roger Meacock.
2: I have indeed. And Roger will be talking about mRNA specifically in animals. And we're going to be looking in the future with Roger at domestic animals as well and the future of animals in 15-minute cities as well.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, another reminder of an event taking place uh, on the 30th of September, On Guard for the Liberty of Man- Mankind. This is being live-streamed by Oracle Films. Uh, that's taking place in Sweden. And this is part of a three-day uh, residential event, which uh, is available for anybody that is able to get there. Um, so do have a look at uh, the website for details. A uh, whole range of speakers, some of them on screen at the moment, including Meryl Nass, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, Michael Palmer, Philip Cruza, John Titus, uh, and a whole bunch of other extremely interesting people. If you want to find out more, have a look at the doctorsappeal.com uh, website uh, for their conference uh, taking place at the end of this month. Uh, and also on the uh, 30th, uh, Matt Campbell will be speaking in London, in Camden, uh, and Piers Robinson as well. Matt Campbell, and uh, recently uh, interviewed by us. Uh, and uh, this is uh, about 9-11, this particular excerpt for this event. Uh, Get along to that if you aren't able to um, get along to the Swedish event. Um, And I just wanted to finally mention this because the energy bill uh, is uh, uh, working its way through Parliament at the moment. There is a petition to pause the energy bill and hold a public referendum before proceeding. Uh, I just wanted to let people know that that was uh, there and available if you would like to sign it. Um, Okay, let's move on then to uh, economics and inflation. And the latest inflation figures came out. uh, And what are they showing? Well, really no change from last month. So although although we've seen uh, a peak and apparently a fall from that peak in the last couple of months, um, things perhaps not falling uh, as far as the Bank of England and others claim that they would like to see. Um, So CPI at 6.7%, that's down 0.1% from uh, last month. And if we look at the uh, topics or the main areas where that we're having an effect, now these graphs, these bars and these graphs look very significant, but in fact, they're not really because if we look at the uh, food inflation, for example, what we find is that it has fallen by 0.1% uh, since last month, uh, transport, and so fuel costs have gone up by 0.15%. So really not much change in inflation, David, but uh, of course that is going to, uh, still high, very high inflation keeps pressure on, And they're still intending to raise interest rates, apparently, at the next monetary policy committee meeting.
1: Yes, and interest rates in real terms are still negative because if we've got 6.7% inflation and the base rate is 5.25%, that's 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 a negative real interest rate. Um, so that's not going to be doing a great deal. Uh, and despite uh, the uh, Radio Four and the BBC claiming this was a game changer, this 0.1% reduction in the uh, headline rate of inflation. um, I don't suspect this will have any impact on the decision that the Bank of England is about to make to put uh, the base rate up another quarter of a percent.
0: Uh, But where does that leave the national debt?
1: Well, um, on on the subject of national debt, we're starting with America because it's the most indebted country in the world. And the Congressional Budget Office, um, they had a projection a little while ago, That uh, interest payment on the national debt uh, for the fiscal year 2023 would be 663 billion, Uh, more on that story in a moment, Um, and uh, by 2033 be 1.4 trillion. Um, So this is going to be by 2033 3.7% of GDP, the highest post war figure. There will be a new post war record from 2029 onwards to say. And how did that actually work out? Well, it was actually much worse. Here we see uh, today's statistics from uh, the St. Louis Fed. Uh, the federal government's current expenditures, interest payments, uh, seasonally adjusted annual amount is just under $1 trillion, uh, $970 billion, And you see the line, it is going straight up. So that's getting worse in a hurry. And of course, this all has to be paid for from taxation revenue. Let's have a look at that as well from comparison purposes. Federal governments of the United States, current total tax receipts. Oh dear, they're going down. And they are at 2.9 trillion. So we've already got to a point where more than one third of everything that the federal government in America brings in is going straight out the door in interest payments. And of course, this is getting worse Quickly, um, now there was a conference at uh, uh, Jackson Hall, which uh, Mark Anderson reported on. Uh, this took place in uh, uh, in August, and um, we've got a few extracts from that. This is a paper submitted at that uh, at that symposium by uh, Barry uh, Echen Green, and he's talking about the problem with high uh, national debt. He says public debts have soared to unprecedented peacetime heights. Uh, And he says they're not going to decline significantly for the foreseeable future. Now, the reasons for this is, firstly, uh, persistent primary budget surpluses are not on the political cards. The government's spending on its credit card. It can't stop politically, and it can't pay the debt down. Secondly, he says it's difficult to imagine favourable interest rate to growth rate differentials. In other words... We can't grow our way out of this because interest rates are going to be higher than the growth rate. So they, although the economy is getting bigger, the debt is getting bigger at a faster rate. So we're getting more indebted, not less indebted. We can't grow our way out. Uh, and he says, third, inflation is not a sustainable route to reducing high public debts. Only unanticipated inflation has this effect. Oh, yes. we we'll more on that story, I suspect, in years to come. And he says, fourth, statutory ceilings on interest rates and related measures of financial repression are less feasible today in the past. And he talks about basically increased economic liberty and says the genie is out of the bottle. So we've got huge amounts of, of debt and we're not going to be able to pay them, pay it back or down or do anything that's going to get worse, is the message. Now, quickly, if we have a little look at the historical uh, record on this, the country uh, which cleared off the go- the greatest amount of debt was, of course, the United Kingdom. In 91 years, between 1822 and 1913, we started off with a, de- a debt-to-GDP ratio of 194% and took it down to 28%. All that required was a century of um, a peace. It was the most peaceful century we've ever had, a century of 2% compound growth in the economy, uh, leading a worldwide industrial revolution and uh, having a, a worldwide empire and being the, uh, the a country in charge of one quarter of the globe. That's not happening again. But just remember that figure, 194%. That's under the best possible circumstances, the best in history that's ever been achieved in paying down a national debt. Also from the Jackson Hole paper, we have this uh, illustration of the situation in Italy. Now, um, Italy's debt is not that expensive compared to America's or Britain's. And this explains why. Because if you look at the net purchases of Italian government debt, uh, foreign banks are not buying anything, foreign known banks are disinvesting, foreign central banks are buying a little bit. But the domestic central bank is buying more or less it all. So basically, the central bank's buying its own government debt. It's monetizing the debt by um, a slightly securitous route. It's not being paid down. It's just been moved from one, uh, one pile of red ink to another. Um, and this is essentially money printing, uh, monetization of the debt, and it will be inflationary. Um, coming to Britain now, we've got the Office for Budget Responsibility. Um, they say, 2023, we expect debt interest spending to total $83 billion, uh, 5.2% of total public spending, 19% £100 per household. That's a figure that should make people sit up and take notice. Um, That's how much we are all paying to support the government's unsustainable spending. Um, Now looking at trading economics, they comment that uh, the interest payable on the United Kingdom central government debt was £7.7 billion in July. This is 1.5 billion more than July last year and was the highest interest payable in any July since records began in 1997. Um, So it's not going well. Financial Times uh, confirms this. Um, Fitch are forecast uh, that the situation is even worse. They expect the Treasury to spend 10% of government revenue on bond costs this year. Uh, 10.4% of government revenue will go on interest rate payments, they think. This is the the highest of any developed country. And it's the first time that Britain's actually topped this particular table, uh, the previous leader being Iceland. Um, so we've got a little graph there that shows the, the debt in the United Kingdom as a percentage of government revenues. And that's the figure that actually matters. It's how sustainable the debt is as a percentage of government revenues. We can see it's, uh, it's, it's been more, less bad than America, but it's now becoming worse than America. And how bad can it get? Well, the Financial Times has got a prediction here from uh, the, Office of Fu- uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, they predict their median forecast is by 2070, uh, UK public debt will be 310% of GDP, 50% higher than it was immediately after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, that will not happen before we get anything right, anything close to that level. What we'll see is economic collapse and uh, the government becoming entirely insolvent and uh, a very substantial breakdown in uh, government in the UK. That cannot be sustained, and it won't be.
0: Yeah, and of course, uh, David, we're already seeing uh, this type of breakdown in local authority, so it's only a matter of time before it reaches central government. Now, Debbie, let's move on to health uh, and the UK Health Security Agency.
2: Yeah, well, on a on a day when the United Kingdom has no NHS, because we don't have any doctors working in the NHS because they're all on strike, I thought I'd focus in on the new UKHSA strategic plan 2023 to 2026. And there you can see her in all her glory, the CEO of the UKHSA, Dame Jenny Harris. Of course, the UKHSA used to be Public Health England, but now we seem to think that uh, it's fused with security. So let's look a little bit more in depth to this report. And again, freeze the screen for the in-depth detail, but basically we're looking at three pillars there, prepare, respond, and build. So prepare, be ready for future security hazards. They're the first line of defense. They work with the NHS and the One Health agenda respond, save lives, reduce harm through effective responses. They also um, respond to monkeypox, mpox, salmonella, radiation, chemical, environmental hazards, floods. They haven't consulted me with regards to floods, but apparently they're into floods and also antimicrobial resistance. And then we've got BUILD to develop the UK security capacity to build and invest in scientific clinical public health. Now, they're also included in genomics and, of course, Porton Down, a high containment laboratory. So the UKHSA have been very busy. And GB News recently caught up with this story, which seems to show that some of the migrants coming over have been showing signs of illness. So they've been busy erecting biohazard tents at Dover. Um, So the UK HSA has taken up that cause. It's also taken up the cause in Wales because it says in Wales specifically, we've got soaring cases of gonorrhea. So they're tracking that. They're saying there's an increase of more than 50 percent compared to 2021. And of course, the UK HSA are international as well. So they are busy tracking and tracing the latest outbreak of fear in India, which is the Nipah virus, which apparently is putting some areas of India into lockdown. But um, I suggest the UKHSA might want to talk to Professor Christopher Whitty, because he's come out and said that, you know, if your child's got a cold, because colds do exist, if they've got respiratory illness, they need to go back to school. So send them back to school, they're better off at school. And I'm sure we all can remember seeing children sitting in circles, social distancing with partitioning, but apparently now, if they've got a mild respiratory illness, it's fine to send them back to school. However, before we all get excited, the UK HSA are warning now that children who have not had two doses of MMR, especially in some areas in London, which we'll look at in a minute. Um, they could face three weeks isolation um, if they're unvaccinated. So these children are going to be excluded from school completely. Now, this is 128 cases, (laughs) 128 cases. And the big reason for this is that the UK has lost its measles eradication status from the WHO. So we've got to get it back quickly. So where are these hotspots that the UKHSA are mapping? Because this is what the UKHSA are doing. They're mapping, and in particular, they're saying that children need this MMR because there could be an outbreak of between 40,000 and 160,000 cases. Which areas of London in particular? Well, the areas that they're busy mapping, apparently the areas at most risk are Hackney, uh, 56% of children inoculated, Kensington, 67%, Camden and Enfield uh, at uh, 68%. So if you live in those particular boroughs, you might just want to, to keep an eye on what's going on in your school and what your doctor is asking you to take your child for. Now, yesterday was the MHRA board meeting and I, along with just over 20 members of public, I'm disappointed that it was a a smaller number, but uh, some friends of ours were joining, including people from the House of Commons, I might like to add, Um, and chairing the meeting yesterday was Professor Graham Cook, because as you remember, Stephen Lightfoot has resigned now Graham Cook has got lots of conflicts of interest, uh, World Health Organization, Imperial College. And yesterday, he announced that he was going to be uh, a member of NERFTAG. And NERFTAG is the new and emerging respiratory virus threats advisory group. And I can tell you now that is a whole new subject which we'll go into. So very quickly, I want to highlight just a couple of things that came up at the MHRA board meeting. It was very poorly chaired. In my, in my honest opinion. Those of us were watching, uh, we were told that if we were rude or we were, they didn't say the word vexatious, but that's what they meant, then we'd be kicked off the meeting. That's not really been said before. Graham Cook was also quite stern in, um, in his introduction, uh, but the revelations uh, around 66, the number 66, so 66 parliamentary questions, have been raised about the MHRA in Parliament this year. That's a triple increase from last year, where there were only 20. Um, The last board meeting, they had a backlog of clinical applications, clinical trial applications. But miraculously, they've cleared 966 clinical trial application backlogs have been cleared. And now they're fast-tracking all the rest. They were talking very much, June Rain was talking very much about regaining the public trust. We don't trust the MHRA. I just want to put it on record there. We don't trust the MHRA. But they're really interested in their own people, recruiting, retaining, doing surveys, psychometric testing. And they and we had a lady appear that said all the members of the MHRA, all the employees are like lilies on a lily pond, and we have to look after them. Um, so the MHRA are quite clearly listening to each other but they're not listening to us. Okay,
0: thank you, Debbie. And you've got a couple of emails here.
2: Lovely, lovely email. Thank you so much from Jacqueline. After our our segment last week on anorexia nervosa, I'm going to be speaking more to Jacqueline in the future, so we can look forward to that. She's um, 74. She's lived with anorexia all of her life, and she's a complete inspiration, and it doesn't have to be the way the government would like it to be. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you to Jacqueline.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, well, you got a bit of a preview of what's coming next. I just want to very briefly uh, mention the Russell Brand saga that goes on. Uh, so as we know, the Times published with Channel 4 Dispatches published this article uh, a few days ago, Russell Brand accused of rape, sexual assaults and abuse. Um, and uh, well, we'll come on to this in a little bit more detail in a second. But before we do, this was the BBC's coverage of the same thing, Russell Brand accused of rape and sexual assault. Uh, And there was one sentence that jumped out of me here. Uh, The Sunday Times reports the BBC said that all the women felt ready to speak only after being approached by reporters. Um, The newspaper said several felt compelled to do so given brands newfound prominence as an online wellness influencer. So uh, this uh, apparently has only happened because of the approach of reporters. And I just wanted to suggest uh, or mention the fact of course, if we look at what's happening with Richard D Hall uh, at the moment, In his case, uh, the legal action that's happening against him appears to have only happened after one of the families uh, involved in the uh, um, Manchester bombing uh, was approached by reporters, in this case, Mariana Spring and so on. So uh, is this a new tactic by the uh, mainstream press to encourage legal action? Um, I'm certainly putting that out as a question. Uh, The other thing that I thought was really pretty despicable about this was the Daily Mail's attempt Uh, To uh, attach Russell Brand to Jimmy Savile. Um, So, this uh, uh, was the headline Listen to the moment Russell Brand tells Jimmy Savile he will bring along an attractive naked female assistant who will give him a massage when they meet. Uh, And uh, so, the implication is that in a telephone call, uh, Russell Brand was offering to effectively uh, procure women for uh, Jimmy Savile. Now, now, I'm not aware that Jimmy Savile is particularly into. To women, uh, he was more into uh, other things, younger things. Uh, but let's have a look at what it says, Jimmy uh, Russell Brand told Jimmy Savile he would bring along a naked female personal assistant who would give him a massage when they met. When Brand asks if he will meet him, Savile says, uh, if you've got a sister, you could uh, meet me by bringing her along. Uh, I don't usually meet fellas, uh, but if you've got a sister, then that's okay. Uh, In response, Brand says, well, I haven't got a sister, but I've got a personal assistant, and part of her job description is that anyone I demand, she greet, meet, and messages. Uh, She has to do it. She's very attractive. Jimmy, would you like her to wear anything in particular, Jimmy? Uh, Savva replies, you prefer to wear nothing, to which Brand jokes, that will not be a problem. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Then, of course, when you actually read further down the article, you discover what this was about. Savile had joined a live call with Brand on Brand's radio program in 2007. Uh, so this was done in public by Russell Brand. And David, I, I'm very, I'm struggling to see the difference between this uh, and, for example, the way that uh, uh, Have I Got News For You, the uh, satirical news program from the BBC covered the Savile thing. They had Savile on their program and they basically baited him in, in largely the same way. But anyway, before I get some comment from you, I just want to mention this. If we come back to the Times article and we look at who uh, wrote this, uh, the name uh, Charlotte Weiss uh, is second on the list there. Um, and of course, she has a bit of history of perhaps not reporting things entirely fairly or in fact, destroying people's lives as a result of articles that she's written in the past, uh, particularly this. Uh, so this headline in the Mail, this was originally published in 2017. Uh, you've got so many lines, you'll end up like Gordon Ramsay with one rogue. What one rogue beautician told undercover reporter in a bid to give her Botox illegally is a soaring number. As a soaring number of women risk horrific scars from treatment, uh, and uh, there she is, uh, Charlotte Weiss was the journalist who wrote this article. She was the undercover reporter, and in fact, this report ended up in. Uh, a uh, an inquiry from Ipso, the regulator, the press regulator, and also a libel case uh, uh, in which, which was finally settled out of court, but only after the Daily Mail having admitted that they got the story completely wrong and it should never been published in the first place, uh, they uh, strung the thing out so long uh, that the victim in this case um, ended up accepting an out of court settlement, which perhaps significantly lower uh, than she was entitled to at the end of the day. So um, I'm going to say there are significant questions around this uh, Russell Brand situation. Uh, And at the end of the day, David, very, very briefly, please, but everybody should be viewed as innocent until proven guilty.
1: Innocent until proven guilty, and it is striking that when the sort of behaviour which Brand was quite open about sexually promiscuous behaviour was his stock in trade, no one mentioned anything about it, and he was given a complete pass. In fact, was lauded and encouraged and egged on and paid by such organisations as the BBC. Uh, and it's only when he starts to say, well, maybe that wasn't the right way to live, and talk about things that are perhaps more, in, well, the first, things that are for sure more important, and uh, starts to talk about some of the things that are actually wrong with the world, then they go for him. It is strange timing.
0: Yes, indeed. Okay, so uh, David, let's move on to uh, Glasgow.
1: Yes, just a little update. We covered this uh, this trial uh, when it was when it first called, and the main trial is now on. Eleven on trial, accused of being involved in a child sex and sex and witchcraft ring. Eleven people are on trial. Uh, Accusations involve four children, and. Overaction said to occur in the city between April 2012 and October 2020. Um, The uh, Glasgow Times is the paper that's covering this uh, daily, uh, pretty much. Uh, They report that the alleged victim of the child sex ring was shut in an oven and a fridge. Um, And uh, they they describe um, one child being interviewed um, where uh, he and another girl rescued this youngster from a freezer he remembered the girl being curled up in a little ball and the first thing she said was help. Uh, there were also, uh, one of the witnesses was uh, a gentleman who, who, who brought this, uh, this information to the police. He'd spent some time talking to the children. He believed them and brought it to the, to, uh, the authorities. Um, and he was being interviewed, uh, examined in court, and he said um, that the children were urged to join occult practices Uh, The court also heard that the Ouija board was used to talk to dead people and spirits. Uh, There's an email describing what happened uh, and claiming there were rape nights, dance and sex nights, as well as dog-killing nights, and a dog owned by one of the coven was amongst the animals said to have been cut and stabbed to death. Prosecutor Kath Harper asked the man if the children got upset when discussing any of these horrendous accusations. The witness replied, one of them did a couple of times about things that happened but the majority of occasions, it was just very much matter of fact, like replaying it in their minds and talking it over. And uh, this uh, final slide is a list of the accused. Uh, they deny the accusations they face, and the trial before Judge Lord Beckett continues. And just a, a sort of final point on this, we should remember that Nicola Sturgeon issued an apology for historical the historical injustice of witch hunts, she said it was injustice on a colossal scale and was simply a case of hatred for women. Um, and uh, she was supporting the call for a national monument and a formal apology over the persecution. Uh, she's been very silent about the actual uh, suffering of people who've, who've, who've suffered under uh, Satanist ritual abuse in Scotland, uh, of which there have been, an unfortunately, a large number. She's not said anything about this ongoing trial, which has uh, not yet reached a conclusion. Um, but it does seem to be a little bit odd that she's making blanket statements about who was and who was not guilty several hundred years ago and not looking at the suffering that's taken place in her own country
0: um, in, uh, in, in, in modern times. Yeah. OK. Thank you, David. Now, Debbie, let's uh, move to Canada.
2: Yeah, let's, uh, let's remember that uh, what happens in the UK, uh, we need to be keeping an eye on Canada and also other countries. So just to just to remind people of KANZUK, so KANZUK is um, a closer tie relationship of four eyes, if you like, between Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the United Kingdom. And we've got very close relationships with Canada um, and our Canadian friends, including the MHRA who have been busy working with Health Canada. And of course, the government of Canada has got, I mean, I've just taken a snippet of it there, but they have a whole page on Canada, United Kingdom relations. So keep an eye on Canada for what might happen in the UK. And saying that, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Theresa Tam, who's Canada's chief public health officer. Now, Dr. Tam originally comes from Hong Kong. Uh, She trained in Nottingham, She's worked for the World Health Organization, and uh, I'd like to just introduce you to her talking to a few children at Christmas last year. Let's have a look.
4: Well, kids, I'm just doing my yearly call to the North Pole for Santa's holiday health check. Are you all set for the holiday season? Of course. I I must say, Dr. Tam, it just warms my heart to see everyone in Canada, especially kids, working so hard to keep the holidays safe and cheerful for all. It's been a tough season with lots of viruses making people sick. We are both up to date with our vaccinations, including COVID boosters and flu shots. That's so good to hear.
3: One, stay up to date on your vaccinations. Two, wear a mask in crowded indoor places and make sure it fits nice and
4: snug. Three, wash your hands to the tune of Jingle Bells Jingle Bells Jingle Also, you can be sure to stay at home if you're feeling sick and if you're gathering indoors with other people or elves, open a door or a window for a few minutes at a time to let in some fresh air. The more items you check off the list, the more protected you are.
2: Happy holidays everyone! Happy holidays, Dr. Tam. So you're getting the picture. Um, So last week, she appeared uh, in front of all the cameras doing a press release because Moderna has um, been approved, the latest Moderna injection's been approved. Um, So let's have a look at her having a, a talk in front of the cameras. Just note the design on her suit. It looks remarkably like a coronavirus to me, but let's see what she says about what's being rolled out or what's being proposed to be rolled out in Canada. Uh, thanks for that. Just as a follow up, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just wanted to take note, you're all, you're all masking, which is lovely to see, of course, but most government ministers are, are not now, most MPs are not, most people on the street are not masking. Is, is there any specific guidance on that going forward at, at this point?
4: Yes, yeah, Theresa Tam, so um, it is a layer of protection. We hope people have developed the habit to be able to use masks as needed during the respiratory virus season, not just for COVID, but for the, all the other um, respiratory pathogens that will be transmitted around this time. So I do think now is the time to get your masks ready if you don't already have them. Um, in our own particular context, we certainly in our area there's been an uptick in some of the COVID-19 indicators. Uh, For me personally there there have been cases around um, you know even my work colleagues so uh, that's one of the reasons uh, why we are wearing masks today.
2: So that's what's looking like coming Canada's way and probably ours soon. But I just want to remind people of a film that uh, that Dr. Tam appeared in 10 years ago in Canada. This was a production from the National Film Board of Canada called Outbreak Anatomy of a Plague. Uh, If we look at the cast list, we can see that uh, Dr. Tam is playing herself, but it's a drama documentary. Now, this was a drama documentary about smallpox. So let's see what Dr. Tam said 10 years ago.
4: I think the public has to know this is one of the worst case scenarios in terms of an infectious disease outbreak in that their cooperation is sought. If there are people who are non-compliant, there are definitely uh, laws and and public health um, powers that can quarantine people in mandatory settings. It's potential you could track people, put bracelets on their uh, arms, have police and other setups to ensure quarantine is undertaken. It is better to be preemptive and precautionary and take the heat of people thinking you might be overreactionary, get ahead of the curve, Um, and then think about whether you've overreacted later. But it's such a serious situation that I think decisive early action is the key.
3: Police checkpoints are set up on all the bridges and everyone leaving the city is required to show proof of vaccination. Those who refuse
1: to cooperate are taken away to temporary detention centers.
2: Do you think she holds those views now?
0: Uh, that, uh, those views and uh, even more extreme, I suspect. Um, okay, uh, David, let's come back onto the uh, green agenda and the 20 mile per hour zones.
1: Yes, yeah, so as you were discussing on uh, Friday, this is 20 mile an hour zones have been introduced all across Wales, replacing the 30 mile an hour speed limits. This was announced by uh, Lee Waters, the Deputy Minister for Climate Change. Not transport, no, 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 climate change. Um, now, uh, looking into the justification for this, uh, we have Transport for Wales have issued a document, uh, default 20 mile an hour speed limit on restricted roads, into the monitoring report. So let's find out what it's all about. Well, uh, firstly, we see that the objective is to improve the well-being of the people in Wales. More on that story in a forthcoming article on uh, UK Call. Um, and specifically, they want to reduce injury and death uh, the number of pedestrians and cyclists killed or serious injured, fair enough. They want to encourage a change in travel behaviour um, away from private car to walking and cycling. And they want to reduce negative effects of, ve- of vehicle use, uh, i.e. carbon emissions, right? They mean CO2 and uh, let's say CO2 is not a potent, but they're maintaining it as and they want to maintain and improve local air quality. So that's what it's about. So they developed some key performance indicators. Oddly enough, uh, public safety and reducing accidents and having fewer people killed or injured wasn't one of the key performance indicators, but some of the other things were. So how did they do? Well, in the trial areas, um, in the 20-mile-an-hour limit, they had 64% of cars were travelling at less than 24 miles per hour, although 45% had been before the change um, the uh, 85, 85th percentile speed, which is what the speed limits were originally based on it was reduced by a whopping 2.5 miles per hour, so a very slight reduction, at least at least initially after the change um, in uh, driver behaviour, but not a great deal uh, and local change to air quality, no material effect, so in fact Some of the areas they measured got a little bit worse. So the justification seems very, very thin. Um, It's it's clearly been driven by climate change and the need to change behaviour. It's not been driven by facts and evidence and data. Uh, People are realising this as a petition. 50,000 people in Wales have signed a petition calling for the default 20 mile an hour speed limit to be scrapped. And there has been some pushback in the manner of the Blade Runners and the U.S. zone in London. This time, the uh, 20 mile an hour traffic signs are being destroyed or painted over, or um, uh, people are getting uh, st-
0: sticky on number threes and returning it to 30 miles an hour. Uh, that, that's not the only thing that we're doing, but we'll maybe talk about that a little bit more in extra. So some of the, uh, some of the va- inverted commas of vandalism has been quite uh, uh, creative. Uh, but anyway, De- uh, Debbie Cornwall, perhaps is the next uh, area to be getting this.
2: Yeah, not to be outdone, Cornwall Council have approved uh, the speed limit reduction to twenty miles an hour in more communities. And um, so, if anybody is coming to Cornwall, the um, let's see where the regions have been the successful pilot. <laughs> I'm not sure that the people of uh, uh, Penryn um, and uh, all the other areas where it's been piloted would think that. But Falmouth, Penryn and Camelford's have already changed across to 20 miles an hour. And coming up next year will be Hale, St Ives, St Austal, Newquay and St Column. So it looks as though we're going 20 miles an hour as well. Uh, so for anybody coming down, uh, it's going to be a slow journey. Uh,
0: indeed. OK, David, and uh, let's uh, finish off then with a short update on the Fernethi, uh story.
1: Uh, yes, the Times have picked this up. They have produced an article, uh, Thatcher's Scottish Solicitor General linked to the abuse of poor girls. And this is all about Nicholas Fairbairn QC and uh, the what they call a summer school. Well, that's not quite correct. Um, but the Fenethy Residential Convalescent School. Now, it, it's, there's been a, f- a few minor factual errors in the article, but it's generally a very good article. I've spoken to quite a number of survivors. They spoke to Susie Henderson, who... who who made a very important contribution. So it's an article well worth reading. And also, because it's the Times, we've got some uh, political uh, response. Uh, Russell Finlay of the the Scottish Conservative Party, their justice spokesman, uh, has demanded the allegations are aired in the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, which has been held in Edinburgh. Uh, He said, quote, "These these deeply disturbing accounts of vulnerable young girls in care being raped by men at the pinnacle of Scotland's legal elite must surely be of interest to the inquiry, he said the dark crimes committed by these men, seemingly untouchable in life, cannot be suppressed any longer. Uh, he is, of course, absolutely correct. Unfortunately, the, uh, the, the, the uh, inquiry is headed by a single lawyer and member of the Faculty of Advocates. This is the same organisation which these abusers were members of. So there may be a conflict of interest and there's certainly not a great deal of action from the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry on Fournetti yet. Um, this was all uh, prompted, of course, by the UK column article uh, for Netty, the Fairbairn connections. Uh, so, I encourage people to look that one out and uh, revisit that if you would.
0: Uh, and finally, um, we've got something from the National here.
1: Uh yes. Um, the <clears throat> this is this is relevant because this might come up. There's a there's an ongoing court case concerning mm-hmm. one of the teachers at Fonetti and uh, she has been charged, not yet been convicted, uh, the case has not yet come, come, to, come to trial, but she's been charged with cruel and unnatural treatment of the children. Um, a recently completed case has seen a former social worker at, um, at, uh, at a Bridge of Weir children's home uh, called She's found guilty, um, some of the mistreatment it uh, was, desc- was described as very similar to some of the mistreatment at Furnetti. Uh Her mistreatment of these children um, uh, uh, has followed the- them into adulthood, the pain has followed them into adulthood, uh, said, uh, said the, uh, the-, the prosecuting solicitor. Um, And the victims said how um, Ramsey, the woman convicted, force-fed them, used physical violence towards them, would hand out humiliated punishments for bedwetting and failing to finish meals. This is all um, abuse that also happened at Fernethi. So she was convicted, um, despite the amount of time that had passed since the, 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 the crimes were carried out, and she was given a community service order for 300 hours of unpaid work. And that light sentence has left the Furnethi, uh victims very angry indeed.
0: Yes, indeed. Okay, that's it for today. Just before we go, though, we've just got two very quick uh, slides here, David.
1: Yes, first, it was uh, just a week after, after 9-11, and um, there was, we see here a meme with the Twin Towers and the phrase, never forget, emblazoned on them, and uh, World Trade Center 7. And uh, that one you meant to forget. Yes,
0: indeed. And then...
1: And uh, yes, uh, a, a worried man visits his, his, his medical advisor. He says, doctor, I'm depressed because of the of the weather uh, 30 years from now. And she suggests, have you tried supergluing yourself to the street? <laughs> yeah,
0: that seems to be the answer. Okay, thank you very much, uh, David and Debbie. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, We'll be back in a few minutes if you are a UK Column member for some extra. uh, Don't forget the interview at 1 p.m. tomorrow. But otherwise, uh, we'll see you at uh, 1 p.m. on Friday as usual. Um, See you then. Bye-bye.